This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the Sacramentalist Podcast, the podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. We're your hosts. I'm Father Creighton McElveen. And I'm Father Wesley Walker. So before we introduce our guests, we need to make one comment about the season. So this will be our penultimate episode of this season. We'll have one more, and it will be a Q&A, which I think is most of our listeners' favorite kind of episode. <laughs> If you are interested in participating in the Q&A, you can send your questions uh, to our email, which is thesacramentalist at gmail.com, or answer the prompt that we will post on social media. And we look forward to being able to get into some of your questions. Um, and uh, yeah, those episodes are always a lot of fun. So looking forward to it. Today, uh, our discussion is going to be about Anglican orders. Uh, we've done an episode on this topic with Bishop Chad before, so if you're listening to this episode on a podcast feed, the audio of that original discussion will be attached. If you're watching on YouTube, we will be releasing that episode's audio in a separate video so that you can go back and take a look. You can watch, you can listen, so you're kind of appraised of the of the situation. We are really excited today because we're joined by two guests. The first is Bishop Chandler Holder Jones, who at this point is one of our reoccurring guests. As we've joked in the past, we're going to have to start making jackets for all of our re reoccurring guests. Uh, Bishop Chad is the presiding bishop of the Anglican province of America. Bishop Chad, welcome. Thank you. Always a delight, honored to be with all of you today and really looking forward to a stimulating conversation. Absolutely. And of, and of course, Bishop Chad gave us our unofficial title, which is that we're the Anglo-Catholic EWTN. Absolutely. Rings true every time. <laughs> we're super excited. We also have, uh, as our second guest, Father Beckett Sewell. Uh, he's taught classical languages, law, and history at the Catholic University of America, the Dominican House of Studies in Washington, D.C., uh, the Pontifical College Josephinum in uh, Columbus, Ohio, and Oxford University, and a retired, uh, he's retired as professor of canon law at St. Paul University in Ottawa, Ontario. He served as an official of uh, the Congregation for the Eastern Churches in Rome, and as a judicial vicar and Episcopal vicar of the Personal Ordinariate of the Chair of St. Peter in the United States and Canada. Uh, Father Sewell has also served Anglican and Catholic parishes in Texas, New Hampshire, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and England. And he is now the pastor of St. Margaret of Scotland Catholic Church in Maggie Valley, North Carolina. Father Sewell, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. We're very excited to have you. And I think uh, our, our listeners, we posted uh, 
on our Discord um, that we would be having you on, and we got some really positive feedback. I think our listeners are really excited to uh, to hear this episode, to watch, and to see what you have to say. So we're we're very excited to have you. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, um, it, it's one of those questions, particularly in talking about uh, not just simply Anglican orders, but simply. Um, what we share and what we don't between the Catholic and the uh, the churches of uh, Anglicanism, and uh, the it's something which keeps changing as well. Absolutely. Well, Father, that kind of takes us into our first question, um, so that our listeners and viewers are aware. Could you tell us a little bit about your story? Um, you're one of two Americans who was conditionally ordained in the Catholic Church after having served in the Episcopal Church in the Church of England. Uh, and we're just curious what that process was like. Well, I, well, first off, the, the answer is there is no process. Um, all of these things are pretty much anecdotal uh, so that there is one of the things when I became a when I became a Catholic, so at least my time in the Episcopal Church uh, was ordained to the priesthood in the Episcopal Church by uh, Bishop Robert Terwilliger, uh, the suffragan Bishop of Dallas. Uh, you can't get much more Anglo-Catholic than that. And um, I served parishes, uh, so I was in uh, Corsicana, Texas, so the fruitcake capital. Uh, for quite some time, and then uh, the Church of the Good Shepherd in Rosemont, Pennsylvania, and uh, then my last parish in the Episcopal Church was Christ Church in Cleveland, North Carolina, the Anglo-Catholic showplace of Rowan County, and uh, I became a Catholic in 1988, and uh, the Dominicans gave me ecclesiastical asylum. I think that's about the only way that you can really uh, describe that. And I taught at Catholic University and at the Dominican House of Studies and was an editor of the Fathers of the Church series, which is published by Catholic University Press. And um, then became a uh, joined the Dominicans, uh, entered the novitiate in 1989, the following year. And I became a Catholic, not with the immediate intention of becoming a um, uh, becoming a Catholic priest. I figured, well, let's let's just wait for the dust to settle and see how things are at that point. But I found that the sense of vocation that had been there when I was an Episcopalian didn't go away. Um, and so the uh, uh, I joined the Dominicans. They didn't make me do seminary again, for which I'm quite grateful. Uh, and I uh, uh, so I was, uh, they said simply, oh, get yourself another doctorate. And so I did. I got the doctorate in canon law uh, across the street at Catholic University. And 
when I came up for ordination, uh, I was working at that point in the chancery uh, for the Archdiocese of Washington, and the archbishop at that point was uh, James Cardinal Hickey. And he said, well, I would like to ordain you. Uh, obviously, with the Dominicans, we can get any bishop in communion with the uh, Catholic Church to do the ordination, but Cardinal Hickey said that he would like uh, he would like to do it because I was one of his judges, and that was fine. And then he wrote off to Rome. I had to submit uh, the documents with regard to my uh, uh, ordination in the Episcopal Church. So, who was the bishop? What was his pedigree? What were my um, credentials, uh, how, what was my preparation, things like that. So everything from the general ordination exam on. And he wrote to Rome and uh, to the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith and said, what do I do with this guy? And um, they responded. Uh, he also had uh, a couple of um, people to write uh, vote up, uh, so their opinions on this. And most of them said, given the state of Anglicanism right now, we can't make a global statement about Anglican orders. It's just simply not possible because there are so many different types and flavors and individual changes here and there. Uh, and so the response came back from Rome quite uncharacteristic uh, to Cardinal Hickey. Well, do what you think is best. And so the way that Cardinal Hickey always worked with regard to um, ordinations is that in the sacristy beforehand, he would ask his master of ceremonies uh, to clarify what it is he was doing. So the master of ceremonies one of his priests would say to the cardinal, what do you intend to do? And he would say in response, I intend to ordain X as whatever. You know, so I intend to ordain John Smith as a priest or whatever. And that way there would be witnesses to what his intention was in conferring that sacrament. And so his um uh his master of ceremonies asked the question uh, what do you intend to do and he responded uh, i intend to ordain beckett's soul as a priest in the catholic church if he is not a priest already period and this caused a gasp uh, among some of the Dominicans and the provincial at that point, uh, Father Urban Vol says, you mean he might have been a priest already and we've been treating him like dirt all this time? To which Cardinal Hickey responded, that's your problem and not mine. And uh, so I was, uh, so I was ordained. Now, nothing was said about this during the ordination, but the fact that he had stated what his intention was beforehand 
And he also mentioned that there was not a formal conditional formula to use at that point. That came into existence the following year with Graham Leonard. And I think I mentioned in my uh, presentation for the Ecclesiastical Law Society that that formal right for conditional ordination of former Anglicans um, was uh, used in the case of Graham Leonard. So that didn't exist yet. Uh, but the fact that he had declared this uh, shows that that certainly was his intention. Um, and that if I was already a priest, he didn't intend to do anything. And if I was not a priest, he intended to supply whatever was lacking in that ordination. And so that is, uh, that's the story. I mean, in the, in the meantime, I, uh, I was in Washington, D.C. for uh, a number of years. Uh, I taught at Oxford. And I taught at Oxford, lived at Cambridge, and that is the best of all possible worlds. And uh, I then worked, uh, taught in the Ukraine at the Catholic University of Lviv. Um, then it was the Lviv Theological Academy, and then worked for the Congregation for Eastern Churches in uh, Rome for a while. So. The presentation that has been mentioned a couple of times, I talked about how does the Catholic Church recognize orders at all, not simply in the case of Anglicans. And I think that there are four ways in which that happens. The first is what happened in the case of Orthodox who come into full communion with the Catholic Church. And that is uh, simply a recognition um, of that. Earlier, however, there was the, uh, the process of what is known as uh, the union abreast. So in the case of some Orthodox who uh, came into, as a, as a group, an entire diocese came in, coming into communion with Rome. And that was called a sanation. And that's usually a term that we use with regard to marriage, but it's also used with ordination in that case. So if anything is missing, then it is retroactively provided. In a sense, it's a retroactive dispensation. Uh, there is that. Uh, there is uh, absolute reordination, which is what is currently used for the um, in the case of the ordinariate and the pastoral provision, uh, there is uh, also then a, and this I had at the end, it's uh, at the very, very end, and I think it's really intriguing because nobody talks about it very much, but there is there are agreements between uh, the two churches, and it's not on the universal level. So the old Catholic, uh, diocese of Germany and the German Episcopal Conference came up with a um, a way of sharing clergy, and that I think is really fascinating. It was put up on the German Episcopal Conference's website, and that link became dead after about a month 
I was able to download it uh, before it went dead, but I don't know whether that is just simply a strange coincidence or not. Uh, in the case of the two Americans who were um, conditionally ordained, there was myself, and then there was John J. Hughes, uh, who wrote a series of books, um, Stewards of the Mysteries, uh, Absolutely Null and Utterly Void, uh, about that in particular. And he was ordained in Germany, uh, despite the fact that he was an American. Uh, and that was a conditional ordination. But again, this was before there was any sort of actual ritual for this. Uh, Graham Leonard was ordained uh, in 1994. And I've heard that there have been others, but that is simply anecdotal. So that's the long, bloody story. <laughs> well, thank you. That's that's awesome. There's a lot there. Um, one of the reasons we wanted to do an addendum to our original discussion about this topic was because of some recent events that caused some ecclesiastical controversy. Um, in particular, the celebration of Mass at St. John Lateran Church by Anglicans led by Bishop Jonathan Baker. The event caused a lot of displeasure from Roman Catholics, especially Roman Catholics on the internet. At least that's where it seemed like most of the consternation was. And it actually caused the arch archpriest of the Archbasilica to issue a retraction. He blamed the event on a breakdown in communications that accidentally enabled a liturgy that was in contravention of canonical norms. So Bishop Chad, I'm going to read your tweet about this event and then ask you to maybe extrapolate a little bit on it. Certainly. And I'll say that that was intentionally provocative. Yes. Yes. Already well. seeing what was being posted on Twitter where charity goes to die. <laughs> so this was intentionally provocative. So with that caveat, please do read away. Yes. So this is what Bishop Chad says. He says the Anglican church with her grace filled Catholic orders, sacraments and ecclesial life is once again front and center in the polemics of online media and commentary. Yes, traditional Anglicans were indeed invited to celebrate Holy Mass on the altar of the Bishop of Rome in his own cathedral of St. John Lateran. Amidst the tsunami of most uncharitable of the most uncharitable vitriol imaginable, this much is true. The controversial out, controversialist outfit church militant accurately observes that with this gesture, apostolic curi has been practically abrogated. Ecclesia Anglicana est valida et vera. It was meant to get some people's goats, as it were. And was. I think you, I think you, I think mission accomplished. Yes, I think so. <laughs> and if I may speak to this whole subject, that's fascinating. This all occurred on April the 18th of this year. And it should not have been controversial for so many different reasons, but we'll speak to that in a moment. But this relates closely to our conversation about Anglican orders. And Father Soul has been wonderful to point out that attitudes and theological approaches to this question have evolved in recent years, certainly from the pontificate of Pope Paul VI and Pope John Paul II, Pope Benedict XVI. In uh, more recent times, uh, it is customary in places around the world for Anglicans to celebrate the liturgy in Roman Catholic churches and vice versa. Roman Catholics have been invited to use churches and cathedrals in England for the celebration of the liturgy. And this has been simply a matter of kindness and hospitality and goodwill. So one would not Im immediately think that this is some kind of controversy. I but was ordained I was ordained at St. Thomas More, Roman Catholic Church in Lynchburg, Virginia. Absolutely, an Anglican ordination. Yep. So this sort of thing is routine, 
But it was the prominence that was given, of course, and the location itself was of the greatest significance because it is, in fact, the Cathedral of the Diocese of Rome. But when you look at the circumstances over recent years, it really ought not to be that controversial. For example, popes from the time of Pope Paul VI to the present with Pope Francis have given archbishops of Canterbury signs of office, an episcopal ring, a crozier, Eucharistic chalice, and there is great symbolic value in those kinds of gifts of recognition, at least in a charitable way of the ministry of the Anglican Episcopate, and in particular, the Archbishop of Canterbury. You think of Cardinal Coco Palmerio in 2017, who wrote about how we should see Anglican orders in a different theological context, as something is actually happening in Anglican ordinations. Uh, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops has issued some very interesting documentation about framing the discussion of Anglican orders in a, a different theological context, maybe not the scholasticism or the rigid manualism that existed in the late 19th century when Leo XIII promulgated his apostolic bull, apostolic curé. So there have been changes in, in and through the 20th century, particularly from mid 20th century to the present time, and the reaction was generally emotional and visceral. I had comments on Twitter such as, what you are writing is demonic, this is evil. Uh, most of the reaction came from what we might loosely call the radical traditionalist or mad trad crowd online, and it was principally online. But it does show that Anglicanism still has and causes a, a, a real impact in, in the Roman Catholic community. I do recall that Cardinal Vaughan of Westminster back in 1895 and 1896 warned Pope Leo XIII that Anglican orders should not be recognized because such a recognition would create a Catholic church for English speakers. His contention was that uh, such a recognition would create a, a, a rival Catholic church in England and in the British Empire, and at all costs, this had to be stopped. So there is this sort of uh, institutional reaction memory, if you will, uh, to give some examples of how far this went, which astonished me personally for the level of uncharity that was demonstrated. And I will name names. Uh, you have Dr. Taylor Marshall, who in his podcast said that Anglicans are bogus and fake and celebrate fake sacraments and bogus masses. Uh, Dr. Timothy Gordon probably was the most notable in his reaction where he said that Anglicans are in fact pagan uh, because we are not Christians for we are idolaters worshiping bread at the Eucharist and that this renders us outside the Christian fold, that we're not even Christians. We are artolaters who worship bread because we profess the real presence and yet we don't have it, so we're worshiping bread. Uh, these are extreme reactions. Kennedy Hall, another well-known YouTuber, made similar comments about bogusness and fakeness in terms of Anglicanism. These are very harsh reactions, which seem to indicate, of course, that we've really uh, hit a sore spot uh, with some of these people. Perhaps it's theological insecurity. Uh, it's a remarkable thing that Anglicanism being so comparatively small would draw this kind of hostile, caustic reaction from some commentators, but in fact, this event did. I think what we can say positively about it, however, 
is that it was a sign of Christian charity and affection and goodwill, uh, the celebration of the Mass that did take place at St. John Lateran was celebrated by Bishop Jonathan Baker of Fulham. It was the Triennial Clergy Conference of the Society of St. Hilda and uh, St. Wilfred and St. Hilda, which is the traditionalist society within the Church of England, which is sponsored and supported by Forward in Faith. Forward in Faith is the Anglo-Catholic constituency in the Church of England. The Holy Father himself gave greeting to this group and welcomed them, and they were given every courtesy in the celebration of the Mass at St. John Lateran. Now, did I go too far in my comments? Of course, there was no practical abrogation of apostolic curé that was meant to draw a reaction, but that comment was made on the outlet Church Militant, where Dr. Jules Gomez and his uh, companion Brad Eli were commenting about this on YouTube, Dr. Gomez said that this was a practical abrogation of apostolic curé. He was so upset about what had happened, he asserted that, which of course is not not at all the truth or the case. Uh, perhaps we wish it were, but that's not not truthful in this situation. But it is remarkable that on the internet there's so much overreaction and so much hostility, even still, regarding this question of Anglican orders, and that's why it's so wonderful to have Father Soul with us to discuss this in a, in a framework of, of academic and theological integrity, of history and context. And we, we pray that as time goes on, that there can be a, a greater resolution of this question, a, a favorable one, uh, one for which we all do pray between the Roman Catholic Church and the churches of the Anglican tradition. Father Sewell, do you have uh, anything you'd like to add on, on that sort of situation? Oh, there are plenty of things to add. Um, but uh, I can recall um, back in my dim and distant past, and I'm going to say it's about 1976, and um, there was a, a, a gathering of the uh, Episcopal clergy at Belmont Abbey uh, from the Diocese of North Carolina. And they were talking about the ARC documents and particularly the, at that point, uh, newly released document on ministry. And um, one of, the, uh, one of the, the gentlemen stood up and asked, uh, and I'm trying to remember his name, he was on the ARC commission and uh, he was a, um, the, the Society of the Atonement, um, and uh, uh, sorry, no, I mean he was uh, he was an assumptionist, uh, and uh, and he was asked what exactly, and this is 1976, what exactly is the status of apostolic curé, and he just simply looked down and said, it's being slowly forgotten. And uh, to which the person sitting next to me said, yeah, not slowly enough, but uh, the, um, I think that, well, two things uh, to, to point out. The first is that simply looking at it historically, uh, given all of the Episcopal ordinations uh, that have occurred since the end of the 19th century, 
that there is um there is no anglican uh, at least, well let's just simply talk about the episcopal church so the episcopal church annual comes out um every year at least i assume it still comes out every year and it has the list of all of the episcopal consecrators uh going back to well samuel seabury and um uh, and in that you have at the very end uh, a list of non-episcopal consecrators so and those are the orthodox and the old catholic uh consecrators who have been there and that shows that there is no um episcopal bishop who is who cannot trace his episcopal pedigree back through the old catholics and the orthodox since apostolic cure so this is something that has happened since the end of the 19th century and so the question that i sometimes ask is that given how apostolic cure was phrased is this of any longer anything but historical interest uh because even by the most strict form of calculation is uh all of the uh, uh all of the anglican bishops in the episcopal church have that now of course some of them are women which shows how all of that changes you know so that i don't think that is uh something which is going to uh be addressed by apostolic curi because i don't think anybody conceived of that at the time um but the 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 change in that ha is also shown in another document which i don't think gets anywhere near the publicity that it ought to and that is a decree of the congregation for the doctrine of the faith from about i think it was um the early or the mid-1970s about ordinations that were conferred by a vietnamese archbishop um uh, who in a sense kind of went crazy uh i think it was involved with the state of Acantus for a while he uh went and ordained a number of bishops and then he came back into communion with the uh, the see of rome and then he went out into schism again and uh died i believe in schism and was excommunicated but uh the congregation for the doctrine of the faith was asked what is the status of these ordinations because presumably if you're talking about the form that was used the liturgical form that they undoubtedly followed it with scrupulous um uh with with uh, uh with scrupulous specificity in all of this and the response i think is really important and it said prescinding from the question of the validity of orders so that they said we are not going to talk about the validity of orders at all but that these people who have been ordained in 
to the episcopacy and those that those men ordained to the um, lower orders, uh, to the priesthood, the diaconate, and the minor orders, cannot be considered as priests of the Catholic Church, period. Because of the ecclesial reality that these people are ministering outside of any church, outside mm -hmm. of any visible church, and therefore, we're simply not even going to bother talking about the validity of their orders. Uh, they are they are not priests of the Catholic Church, and certainly they're not priests of any other church. And that, I think, is where the discussion has now moved. It's moved to ecclesial reality. And there, you can certainly talk about um, Anglicanism as as sharing in the reality of a church, because that's, of course, why in the uh, Second Vatican Council in Unitatis Redintegratio, uh, talking about the Anglican communion, didn't use the word church, but it talked about communion, a communion of, well, what? Obviously churches. Uh, that, it's, uh, that it shows that uh, the Anglican communion shares uh, many of the parts of uh, ecclesial reality that had fallen apart everywhere else. And uh, so that the uh, special position which the Anglicans uh, hold there. The other thing, of course, is that the door does swing both ways. Um, the Catholic parishes, which have become uh, Anglican parishes, um, as well as the Anglican parishes that have become Catholic parishes. Um, I have said a number of times, and typically trying to do this on the um, on the feast of my uh, patron Thomas Beckett. Uh, so I have said Mass in Canterbury Cathedral uh, at the altar of the Swords Points, right where uh, Thomas was martyred, uh, and this was through the. Um, uh, through the good graces of a former Archbishop of Canterbury, who frequently was there, um, he sang Mass at that same altar immediately beforehand, and he came up and whispered in my ear uh, one year, he says, you realize that this is probably the first time that a Catholic Mass has been celebrated on that altar since the Reformation. And... So, uh, yeah, the door swings both ways, I think. In a, um, but I think that the fact that we no longer use the same language, even, much less the same dialectic that was used at Apostolic Curie, because one of the things, there were six people on that commission, and the vote was a tie vote. Three found... Um, the three who were not English and had not been appointed by um, Cardinal Vaughan, three of them found Anglican orders to be valid, and the three English were uh, who were appointed to the commission by Cardinal Vaughan found that to be not valid uh, because they had been asked to take an oath 
before being appointed that they would find Anglican orders to be invalid, uh, which they did. So they kept their oath. Yay. Uh, but that, of course, puts into question uh, what was going on there, that the three who did not prejudge the final statement, uh, including uh, Pietro Gaspari, uh, the father of the 1917 code, uh, found it to be um, uh, found it to be at least uh, uh, possibly valid, uh, but did not find that the arguments against it were determinative. And but that's not the that's not the conversation anymore. Now it's the question of ecclesial reality, and hence Cardinal Coco Palmerio's comments about. Uh, the chalice that was given to uh, Archbishop Ramsey, Michael Ramsey, the Archbishop of Canterbury. He says, this isn't just a cup to stick on your shelf. This is obviously to celebrate the Eucharist. Um, and uh, one of my predecessors at the Church of the Good Shepherd in Rosemont, um, who became a Catholic, um, was asked whether he would accept conditional reordination and he said no because uh absolutely not because my orders as an anglican were nothing but a sham and an illusion and when this came back to me in um, in rosemont they said well what do you think of that and i said well he certainly didn't think that the paycheck he received from the church of the good shepherd was a sham and an illusion <laughs> Father, I'm 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 wondering as as someone who's kind of occupied both worlds then, and you even related this in your story earlier about the about the fellow priest in the in the diocese of the Carolinas who said uh, who said that it's not being forgotten soon enough. You know I, that there's there's some frustration among Anglo Catholics on the response of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, I think many of us find a persuasive defense of our orders in the Anglican response, uh, sapius officio. We have what we call the Dutch touch, like Bishop Chad was talking about earlier. I mean, we know that that's not persuasive to everyone, but it's still certainly something that has to be reckoned with. But with the advent of the ordinariate, it seems like, I mean, that is the primary Roman Catholic response is, is reordination with some exceptions. And I think some of us, even at the grassroots level, experience a kind of sacramental recognition like i'm thinking about a funeral i did recently a requiem mass where i did the anglican burial rite and then uh, the deceased brother who is a who's a roman priest did the mass and i was invited to take the priest host with the other priests who were there um and i'm thinking about how i go to a roman priest for confession often and you know and he doesn't really have a problem with with that so it just is kind of there's some cognitive dissonance there it feels like and so i guess we were hoping maybe while realizing this is really complex and, and hard to do, could you kind of help our Anglo-Catholic listeners understand from the Roman perspective? Like, why is this the kind of response that we get? Well, um, deflecting that question for a moment, I think that the, uh, the first thing is that one of the things that you hear frequently from Anglicans who have become Catholics is that 
there is a magisterium, there is a teaching authority in the Catholic Church, which you do not find in Anglicanism. And there is something to that. One of the things that people ask me frequently is, why did you become a Catholic? Uh, sometimes with a fair amount of hostility. Um, Catholics asking that, you know, why, 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 why did you become a Catholic? And I think that I have been asked that so frequently that I should come up with a really, really short answer. Uh, but I haven't yet. Um, but the one thing that I can say is be, uh, that I became a Catholic because I came to the conclusion that the claims which the Catholic Church makes for itself are in fact correct. And having come to that conclusion, I didn't think that either the Catholic Church or the Episcopal Church would be really keen on my staying as rector of Christ Church. And so, having said that, I think that if you ever found it, I'm not sure of a period in which it would be found, but I don't think that the Catholic Church is the kind of monolithic um, institution that it was at one point, or at least in a kind of vaguely remembered past. Uh, one of the uh, my one of my uh, teachers from seminary, uh, Dan Stevick, uh, probably one of the few um, canon lawyers in the Episcopal Church. Uh, always referred to the Roman Church and said that uh, under the old liturgy, any Catholic could go to Mass anywhere in the world and not understand what was being said. And, uh, but I think that that uh, th there is a romanticized view of the Roman Catholic Church in a previous period of being monolithic and it was going to be the same everywhere. And I'm not sure that that is historically true. Uh, so I will not talk about this theologically. I'm not a theologian, uh, but I play one on TV. And I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a historian and I'm a lawyer. And so I'm not sure that that was true historically. Uh, that there was this one way that you uh, could approach the Catholic Church and that it taught only one thing. Uh, but I think that certainly since, and I'll say probably since the 1950s, because you find the first set of married Anglican priests coming in under that notorious liberal Pius XII. And the uh, uh, but certainly since then, uh, you find a great deal of, and I'm going to use a loaded word here, the this an incredible diversity within Catholic practice, and some of which I think we could sign up to with whole heart, and others are absolutely horrifying. But it's, you know, because the Catholic Church is the biggest of all big tents. And I think one of the things that, as I was talking about becoming a, becoming a Catholic, um, 
and uh, served for a while as a spiritual director at an Anglican seminary that I am not going to mention the name of. Uh, but people would come to me with what we always referred to as Roman fever. Uh, oh, I've got to become a Catholic. I've got to become a Catholic. And this, as I was an Anglican, I would say, um, just go to Mass. And they said, well, which parish? I said, doesn't matter, anyone. And then come back next month and we'll talk about it. And they would come back next month. Oh, Father, it was so horrible. They, 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 they addressed the Almighty as you. And so there was, you know, there was that. And, and because there was a great deal of um, diversity in the liturgy, there is a great deal of diversity in practice. And even though, and, you know, so that, for example, look at even the ordinariate, I think the ordinariate in a lot of ways has been hijacked. It's not what it was intended to be. It's been hijacked as a way for people to basically do the Tridentine right um, in English. And as I keep saying over and over and over and over again, that's not our tradition. Our tradition is a lot older than that. And 1570, all of these, all of these modern things, you know, Pius V, and yeah, I mean, that's just so new. I mean, we, we need to go back to the roots. And, uh, but I think that, uh, yeah, that, that the, although Rome, and, and one of the things, of course, that we're seeing uh, certainly in this pontificate is that Rome does not always speak with one voice. Um, people will only listen to one voice at a time, but that, I mean, there's, there's a great deal of diversity in that. And so one wonders if, let's say, Rome wanted to recognize Anglican orders one wonder, or let's let's not even talk about Anglican orders. Let's let's talk about some other, uh, the the orders of some other ecclesial community. How would they do that? I don't think they even know how to do that anymore, because there's no longer a single voice, and particularly because of the whole sense of, I mean, now the you know the the. Um, it's theology by buzzwords. Um, so we need to talk about synodality. All right, fine. Um, but uh, um, as there, there's always the uh, the, the great line, one of the most magnificent lines from the Princess Bride. I don't think that word means what you think it means, and uh, that there is. Uh, I mean, there's very much a sense of this diversity which has come in. Um, to the Catholic Church. I'm not sure that the Catholic Church ever was as monolithic as it is frequently portrayed in its um, ultra-modernist phases. But uh, nowadays, I think there are people who are recognizably Catholic, but are um, experiencing a wide variety of... Um, the word you used was was grassroots, and I think that's perfectly um, 
that's perfectly acceptable. I think I would I would say you know kind of there is a diversity within Catholicism, which is now recognizable in a way that it was not uh, in previous eras. And it's not simply saying people who are uh, so words you know, throwing words back and forth, such as heretic and schismatic and things like that, um, are not as, uh, are not as useful, um, in all of this. But as I, you know, as I said before, I think that the kind of ecumenical implications of this is that there is going to be a growing together between the two churches, but it's going to start at the bottom and not at the top. And if we've learned anything from the ARC, the Anglican Roman Catholic conversations, it's that it has to start at the bottom and it's not going to start at the top. I think that's, I think that's really interesting. I think, you know, many of us have, have probably experienced some level of grassroots cooperation. Um, as Father Wes said, um, you know, and I think at the very least, if official change is far in the future, um, it does a lot at some level, you know, we actually can um, cooperate, we can have positive meaningful relationships with each other and and display christian virtues of you know faith hope and charity and things like that to a to a world that needs it yes because i mean charity i mean the charity is a way of expressing truth and it's never you 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 can never separate the two but that of course is saint thomas so bishop chad do you have anything to uh to add at this point as we kind of come to the conclusion of our discussion i just want to thank father soul for this wonderful exploration of this subject and it's wonderful to point out some of the specifics which father you have done which changes the circumstances about the way the church uh, would look at it from the, from the roman catholic perspective because there are different schools of thought different perspectives perhaps many different perspectives theologically uh, historically from the roman catholic point of view and the, the ecclesial reality issue ecclesiality and communion clearly must play a more central role in the question of ecumenism and churches relating one to another, identifying the ecclesial reality, the ecclesiality of a Christian community. And that speaks to us. I would simply want to say that the continuing Anglican churches, of course, are very, very small, but present perhaps a, a unique kind of flavor in this conversation because we inherit all of the Episcopal succession and the Dutch touch, the old Catholic infusion that we've referred to, and an unbroken Anglican line of Episcopal consecration, priestly ordination, without the thorny question of the purported ordination of women. But we are a very small community, and to my knowledge, the Roman Catholic Church has never directly engaged the continuing churches in any kind of formal conversation or dialogue 
But that is the kind of conversation one would hope would develop at a higher level. But the grassroots interaction is clearly the most important where we can learn to love one another, grow together in a mutual respect and understanding on a local level. But we pray that someday there might be the possibility of a, a real conversation, a real dynamic between the Anglican Joint Synods, the St. Louis Affirmation Churches, and the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, those of us who participate in this particular podcast are mostly of the G3, the Anglican Joint Synods. Mm -hmm. We arise out of the 1977 St. Louis Congress. Our jurisdictions were organized to preserve and continue and perpetuate Orthodox Anglicanism in North America and now throughout the world as a result of the changes in the Anglican Communion beginning in 1976. So perhaps we present unusual challenges or perhaps easier ways of recognizing ecclesiality. <laughs> and it's wonderful that we can have this conversation to talk about where things have stood and where things have clearly developed. I'd also like to say it's clear that Apostolic Curie is a dated document. Obviously, so much has transpired since 1896, most particularly Old Catholic infusion and interconsecration with Orthodox and Old Catholics theologically, sacramentally, that would have to change the circumstances in a dramatic fashion. And certainly all those circumstances have changed. So we're looking at things now from a very different point of view from where we would have been 125, 150 years ago. And it's exciting to think about the prospects for the future. Thank you. I did want to give a shout out to one of our listeners and a parishioner of mine, uh, Kyle who actually is the one who sent me the video of your lecture, Father Beckett. And, he, and it was because he's in the Navy and was going on deployment and wouldn't have access to sacraments and asked the Roman chaplain on his ship if they would, uh, if he would be able to hear confession and receive communion while they were at sea, to which the, the chaplain told him no. Uh, and so it, it, the issue ended up getting kicked up to actually the, the archbishop of the armed chaplains, um, who basically said that the priest could do what he felt like was right. Um, but anyways, but he reached out to you and you all exchanged emails. So I did want to say uh, publicly thank you for that. And I wanted to say thank you to him for uh, for sending me that lecture, because that's kind of what what got us here. Because you can never have too many lawyers. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, I think that uh, that leads us into our favorite segment, which is uh, what we're into. Um, so we'll kind of lighten things up a bit. Um, Bishop Chad, we'll start with you. What are you into these days? Oh, just traveling and working and occasionally breaks. My family and I took a wonderful beach holiday to Ocean City, Maryland back about three weeks ago, and it was beautiful. It was actually quite cold. We were there for almost a week and had a wonderful time right on the surf. And yesterday, we took my oldest son to Tocoa Falls College which is only about an hour north of us here in Buford, Georgia. He'll be matriculating there in August of this year, starting his college career. We're very excited for him. So on Father's Day, we took a little drive up and we had a little tour of the campus just to walk around. And I'm very excited about that. Leaving tomorrow for a few days to Calgary, Alberta, Canada, where I will be uh, the chief consecrator for the new Bishop of India. Uh, officially called the Anglican Church of India. It's the APA-affiliated church in India. And uh, Father Richard, the bishop-elect, is flying 
uh, from Bangalore, India, right now uh, to Frankfurt, and I think from there to uh, Calgary, and I'll be headed out there with our missionary bishop, Bishop David Haynes, for a few days for this Episcopal consecration. So I'm, when I'm not doing things like that, I just like to read, uh, and I started reading, you know, I read theology for fun, so I've actually been reading the King's Book and some of the Henry VIII period Henrician Catholicism material, a very early uh, Anglicanism in the sense of separation from Rome, and learning all about how they were invoking saints and believing in purgatory in the reign of Henry VIII. So that's been fun. But it's been uh, where possible time with the, the wife and kids and some family vacation time. We'll be taking some more time coming up in a couple of weeks as a family just to have a break. So looking forward to that again. Definitely. That sounds like a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, make sure you have some fun in the midst of all your working. Absolutely. Um, Father Sol, what have you been into? Well, uh, this is, uh, I mean, being here in the Smokies uh, in Maggie Valley, uh, this is a very busy time. The National Park here uh, and the parish abuts that is um, the largest national park in the United States, both with regard to size and with regard to number of visitors. So about 16 million visitors a year of which probably a significant percentage are Catholics. And we're the closest parish, St. Margaret's is the, the closest parish to uh, the North Carolina entrance to the National Park. There's obviously the Tennessee side as well. Uh, so this is a busy time, but uh, I also spend an awful lot of time on genealogy. And uh, I'm a descendant, what am I, 12th generation from George Soule, who was a Mayflower passenger. And uh, I'm descended from 18 of the descendants on the, of the uh, passengers on the Mayflower. And that I, I spend uh, an awful lot of time so that the, uh, the most common um, question that I ask as soon as I meet somebody new is just simply, where are your people from? And... Uh, that's not what they're expecting from a Catholic priest, but it's, uh, uh, you know, you find, uh, I, I love the idea of grassroots because that's, I'm, I'm really into roots all over the place. So a gardening in the back here as well, but we're at 3,500 feet and uh, we've just put in new windows um, into the church. Uh, it was consecrated by the um, apostolic delegate to the United States, Luigi Ramondi. It was the gift of uh, a local businessman. And then he went to seminary at the age of 75. Uh, so it's never too late. He was then ordained in the church that he built in uh, 1972 as the first priest ordained in the newly established diocese of charlotte and was pastor here for 20 years so yeah it's never too late that's amazing oh. uh man seminary in your 70s sounds like uh that's an <laughs> a endeavor a punishment yes yeah, maybe <laughs> uh father father wes what are you into 
Well, I've said this before, but I, you know it's cyclical, so I feel like I have to say it again. But I'm I'm really into baseball lately, the great American pastime. Uh, my wife and I were given two tickets recently to see the Baltimore Orioles play the Kansas City Royals, and we were about five seats behind home plate, five rows behind home plate, which was really exciting. I told my wife, "You can't get used to this," um, because this was her first game ever. <laughs> it, it's rare that we'll get tickets that good. But uh, but anyways, but it's just such a great game, and and with all the other sports kind of ending at this point, it's the only thing on. But it it's so fun to watch, and um, yeah, yeah, and of course the Oriole Baltimore Orioles, who have been historically so bad. Uh, the first week I came to Maryland, I saw them lose twenty three to two. Ever since then, they've gotten really good. They're actually really amazing this year, and so I always tell my parishioners they weren't that good before we got here. I'm not saying it's directly related, but you can't prove that it's not. So baseball, that's what I'm into. What are you into, Father? Well, I think we need to find you a job as the chaplain for the Orioles then. Ooh. You seem to be their lucky charm. Yeah, oh, there we go. Um, well, what I'm into is I'm actually into... Um, I've been into it before. I've got a, an old set of them, but Peter Crave, Socrates' Children um bishop baron's uh word on fire edition the i have it right here next to me uh his new edition um of this series is really stunning um i was actually given this set by uh father robert bader so he gets a shout out um as a birthday present and um they're great i mean they're really good as like a I don't know, maybe a high school level introduction to, to philosophy. Um, and, you know, if, if you're, you know, you have parishioners, anybody interested in sort of getting their toes wet in philosophy, it's a really, it's a good place to start. Uh, but I really love this particular edition. Um, they're really well bound, beautifully done. Um, and very impressed by the Word on Fire publications so far. Um, I have the three volumes um, of the Bible somewhere. I don't have them at hand, but they're somewhere and they're really, really beautiful. So really enjoying those and rereading uh, Peter Crave. It's always fun. He's great. Uh, so that's what I've been into. Nice. Yeah. They sent us, well, someone sent us copies of their uh, compilation on Catholic social teaching when we did our season on cst a while ago and they're beautiful and really well done as well yeah super super nice um so recommended that's a sacramentalist recommendation at the end of this episode sacramentalist guarantee <laughs> yeah put a stamp on it um all right everyone thank you for watching and listening if you are interested in following us you can follow us on facebook or twitter uh, if you're watching on YouTube, please remember to subscribe and give us a like, comment if you'd like. And if you are interested in joining uh, our Patreon, which is the Communion of Patreon Saints, you can for $5 a month. Uh, and we also uh, release some special content for our Patreon followers there, um, especially during the summer. Um, thank you for listening. Bishop Chad, will you close us out? Uh, with the colic for the unity of God's people. I would be honored and thank you all again for being a part of this magnificent conversation today. Let us pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. 
O God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our only Savior, the Prince of Peace, give us grace seriously to lay to heart the great dangers we are in by our unhappy divisions. Take away all hatred and prejudice, and whatsoever else may hinder us from godly union and concord, that as there is but one body and one spirit, and one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, so we may be all of one heart and of one soul, united in one holy bond of truth and peace, of faith and charity, and may with one mind and one mouth glorify thee through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Welcome to The Sacramentalist, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. We hope moving forward you'll join us for in-depth discussions on how theology intersects with our daily lives. We're your host. I'm Father Miles Hickson. And I'm Father Wesley Walker. And we are super excited today to have a very special guest. We have with us Bishop Jones of the Anglican Province of America. Welcome, Bishop. Thank you so much. It's a delight and honor to be with you. I'm so excited for this invitation. Thank you for having me. Right. Well, before we get into our topic for the day, because we have a lot to discuss and it's a meaty topic, which is good. Bishop, can you just give us uh, your own short Reader's Digest introduction? What do you do? How do you do it? What are you into? Thank you. Well, I'd, I'd be thrilled to tell you a little bit about myself. I'm Bishop Chandler Holder Jones, SSC a member of the Society of the Holy Cross, which is the oldest fraternity for Anglican priests and one of the vanguard organizations, if you will, of the Oxford movement and the Tractarian revival in the 19th century. Well, I am the bishop coadjutor of the Diocese of the Eastern United States of the Anglican Province of America, and I was elected to that position in July at our annual diocesan synod. But to backtrack a little bit, I was brought up an evangelical Southern Baptist in North Carolina and converted to Anglicanism when I was a teenager. Recently, back in 2015, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal about this conversion because my brother, at the same time, an identical twin brother, converted to Roman Catholicism. And so the article featured us. He is a Roman Catholic priest. I am today an Anglican bishop. And we went our separate ways in our teen years. I was brought up to Southern Baptist, went to college with the expectation of becoming a priest, and upon graduation from undergraduate at a small college in Virginia, went to Duke University Divinity School, was graduated in 1996. I was ordained deacon and priest in the continuing church that year, and I've served parishes in Virginia, Maryland, Florida, and Georgia. And today I'm the rector of St. Barnabas Anglican Church in Dunwoody, Georgia, which is a suburb of Atlanta, just north of the city. I've been there now for 12 years. So when I'm not functioning as the coadjutor of the diocese, I'm trying to help out as the rector of my own parish. They keep me very busy. <laughs> That's great. Well, it is an honor to have you today. Mm -hmm. It is going to be such a delight to pour into your wealth of knowledge and, and glean what you have to offer to us. So jumping into our topic, so many of our episodes thus far 
on the sacramentalist. Uh, they've been a defense of the Anglican faith and Anglican practice, particularly Anglo-Catholic faith and practice, in light of what I would call low church evangelical critiques. So we've been addressing these concerns about Anglicanism as if the people listening and our interlocutors were evangelicals, low church, who needed a defense. Well, today we're shifting gears. We are going to defend Anglicanism as a true and properly Catholic expression of the faith in light of Roman Catholic and to some extent Eastern Orthodox critiques. And and really the crux of these critiques, they hinge upon the question, do Anglican ministers have valid holy orders? In other words, are Anglican clergy, are us three on this podcast, in apostolic succession that our Lord Jesus Christ established for the sake of word and sacrament, or are there no differences between us three and the Protestant ministers down the street? And so with that question, are Anglican ministers validly ordained in Catholic order? I turn it over to you, Bishop. This is a huge subject, and I'm so glad that we're tackling that today. Thank you. This goes to the very essence, the very heart of the claim of the Anglican Church to have a continuity with the Church of the Ages. Anglicanism historically has always said that it has no faith and no order but that of the undivided Catholic Church of the first millennium, and that the Anglican Church is, in fact, the ancient Catholic Church of the British Isle. It was once said in England that it was the Catholic Church of the country, and that has certainly been the position of Anglicanism since the Reformation and before the Reformation and during the cataclysmic experiences of the Reformation. But this has been a consistent, unbroken position of Anglicanism from the very beginning. And the heart of the claim that Anglicanism is a true branch of Christ's one holy Catholic and apostolic church resides in the assertion that we have maintained the apostolic ministry of bishops, priests, and deacons in an uninterrupted succession from the apostolic age. So where can we go to find where Anglicanism asserts this? Well, let's read from the preface of the ordinal, which is the ordination service of the Anglican Church promulgated in 1550. And at the very beginning of the Reformation period, we read this. It is evident unto all men diligently reading Holy Scripture and ancient authors that from the apostles' time there have been these orders of ministers in Christ's church, bishops, priests, and deacons, which offices were evermore had in such reverend estimation that no man might presume to execute any of them except he were first called, tried, examined, and known to have such qualities as are requisite for the same and also by public prayer with imposition of hands, were approved and admitted thereunto by lawful authority. And therefore, to the intent that these orders may be continued and reverently used and esteemed in this church, no man shall be accounted or taken to be a lawful bishop, priest, or deacon in this church, or suffered to execute any of the said functions, except he be called, tried, examined, and admitted thereunto, according to the form hereafter following, or hath had Episcopal consecration or ordination. That's the preface to the ordinal, and that sets the intention for what the Anglican Church does. 
Now, it must be said at the beginning that more ink has been spilled over the subject of Anglican orders than any other theological disputation in English language. Probably more books and more essays have been written about Anglican orders than anything else, because it has been such a controverted, a controverted question since the time of the Reformation. But perhaps this, this day, in a simple way, we can try to put to rest and settle favorably the question of Anglican orders. We would like to do that today if we could. Right now, here on, on, the, yeah. on the, uh, the sacramentalist, we will put the question to rest forever. Put it to rest forever. What a, what a day to be alive. <laughs> We're going to try, aren't we? Well, let's please try to do that. And we would have to first address the question of validity. What is a valid sacrament? A valid sacrament in the general sense of the meaning of the word is a sacrament that is efficacious. That is, that it provides the grace that Christ promises to us by instituting and giving the sacrament to the church. Now, strictly speaking, validity is a legal term, not a theological one. Any sacrament is valid for the community that celebrates it. So it's a legal term. It is recognized in the community for the community, for the church within a particular church. The question of validity only presses us when we begin to examine whether or not the sacrament of one church can be recognized by that of another church or can be recognized by another church. Then the question of validity starts to play a larger role in our discussions about theology. Every sacrament is valid for the church that celebrates it. But when two churches begin to interface and to relate to each other, then the question arises, is the sacrament one that can be mutually recognized? Now, within the church's life herself, valid means working, ex opere operato. It's working according to the work. So the sacrament produces the effect that Christ ordained for it, and it is efficacious. It actually confers grace. What we maintain is that Anglican orders are both valid in the legal sense, recognized not only by the Anglican Church, but also should be recognized by other churches, and it is valid in that more precise theological sense that it is efficacious, holy orders confer the grace of Christ. So this is what was disputed by Pope Leo XIII in 1896 in his papal bull Apostolicae Curae. And what we want to do today is to address what Pope Leo XIII has written in that papal bull and in, in it the condemnation of Anglican orders, which he said were absolutely void, utterly null, or maybe it was absolutely null, utterly void. And we want to address that in particular. Now, as we speak today, we'll only address holy orders conferred by Orthodox Anglican bishops using the historic ordinal. There are even questions within Anglicanism about whether or not there has been a proper transmission of holy orders according to the use of more contemporary rites. So we will limit ourselves to addressing the question of holy orders as conferred by bishops who are orthodox regarding the doctrine of holy orders and use the 1550, 1662, 1928 tradition of the historic Anglican ordinals. And we'll try to avoid 
any modern controversies regarding contemporary liturgical rites. I've spent a number of years, actually I think it's fair to say decades, examining this question because like many of us, I have Roman Catholic family and friends, starting with my brother, who is a Roman Catholic priest. And so we Anglicans often are put on the defensive regarding this question, and we are asked to defend the teaching and the practice of the Anglican Church. How can you maintain that you have Catholic holy orders? Well, that's what we'll discuss today. What is the sacrament of holy orders? Let's address that first. It's the transmission of the authority, grace, and commission of Jesus Christ which our Lord gave to the 12 apostles, and that authority, grace, and commission, the very office and authority that Christ gave to the 12 in the apostolic office, is conferred by the unbroken consecration and the laying on of hands, the imposition of hands, from the 12 to the bishops of the current apostolic college of the modern day. We call this apostolic succession. It is literally the succession of the apostles. Christ ordained the twelve as the first bishops of the church and gave them power to teach, sanctify, and govern the church in his name and person. So in order to constitute the church in history as a perpetual sacrament, Christ, through the imposition of hands and the invocation of the Holy Ghost, created the priesthood of the Catholic and apostolic church. And this priesthood is apostolic. It resides in the persons of the twelve, who hand on what they were given by an unbroken succession of authority and grace. So this power to teach, sanctify, and govern is the power to administer the word and sacraments as Christ instituted them, and therefore the church applied to this ministry in the third century the term sacerdotium, or priesthood a term that was first applied not to the presbyterate or the second order of the ministry, but to the episcopate, to the first order, when St. Cyprian of Carthage first used the term sacerdos to apply that to bishops. Bishops were understood to be priests in the Catholic sense. So the sacrament of holy orders is the sacrament of the church's life and history the structure upon which the church is built sacramentally. And this sacrament is the apostolic sacrament by which men are consecrated as the successors of the apostles and exercise the apostolic ministry in persona Christi Capitus, in the person of Christ, who is the head of the church. So this is where we must begin. Is this doctrine contained in the ordinal and in the Book of Common Prayer? Mm-hmm. It is. Let me pause there and see what your comments are on this. <laughs> I have a I have a question, uh, so much more than a comment, and I think it would be beneficial because obviously I think our audience comes from two different um, perspectives. We have the people who might be Roman Catholic or Anglican Catholic, and they would all agree with pretty much everything that you've said. But we also have a number of, you know, low church Anglicans and evangelicals who are maybe on the Canterbury Trail. Could you just say uh, a little bit about the importance of of apostolic secession being a manual transmission rather than merely uh, the minister kind of embodying the spirit of the apostles preaching? 
Thank you. That's terrific. The reason why it's important is because the church is herself sacramental and is the great sacrament of Christ in history. Therefore, Christ intended not a, a sort of ephemeral or ghostly or Gnostic handing on of the authority that he gave to the apostles, but rather it is concretized, is concretized, if you will, in history. And so the sacramental principle is that Christ extends his incarnate life and work through outward and visible signs of inward and spiritual grace, of which the church is the greatest sign and representation. Christ, the incarnate Lord, is the sacramental God, and he operates in the sacramental sphere. So the church is herself a sacrament, and he constituted and ordained the apostles to be in the words of Father Austin Ferrer, the great Anglican preacher, walking sacraments. Mm -hmm. So the priesthood is an outward and visible sign of Christ's apostolic ministry. The manual transmission means that there is a physical contact, a transmission physically between the apostles and those who succeed them. And with the laying on of hands is the gift of the Holy Spirit, who then consecrates the man and imparts upon him an indelible character of grace so that it is not the worthiness of the man but rather the transmission of the authority and this this conferral of a supernatural gift of grace which enables the bishop or the priest or the deacon to exercise his ministry all of this is the teaching of saint augustine so hopefully we can appeal to people of a more evangelical stripe because they certainly would have a love and respect for the teaching of the great father of the Western church. This is Augustinian theology. But underlying that, it is essential to say that Christ ordained and constituted his church and structured his church in a visible way. The church is the divine society of souls that possesses visible characteristics. And amongst these, what is chief is this transmission of having a leadership, a headship in the church that is visible, that is tangible, that is real in the real world, so that the apostle, the bishop, becomes the vicar of Christ. The bishop of Rome has taken this title to himself in a unique sense, but in a real sense, according to St. Cyprian of Carthage and St. Augustine of Hippo, every bishop is the vicar of Christ in his diocese. St. Ignatius of Antioch said, that the bishop is the icon of God the Father in his local church. So when we take the fathers and we start to examine what they say, it is necessary if the church is to have a visible sacramental reality, it must have a visible sacramental head. And the head of the church is the bishop. The Bible and the early tradition does not know of a unique and exclusive bishop of, of Rome who has a universal authority that is exclusive and different from the authority of the episcopate. St. Cyprian and St. Augustine said that the office of Peter is possessed in common by all bishops sharing one authority in the apostolic college. Yeah, and so I think this is an important point to make if you're more of the evangelical persuasion. Maybe this conversation's new to you, that when we talk of apostolic succession, that is not synonymous with papal succession. Precisely. So, so papal succession is 
what it sounds like, the succession of the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, and then the claim by Roman Catholics is to be valid or to be in in some sort of connection to the one true church. You must be an authority to him, under him, and with what he teaches and preaches, etc. But apostolic succession is 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 a bit less nuanced. It's simply the the full, as you said, bishop, college of bishops across the across the globe, even today. Yeah. Anglican Catholicism, like Eastern Orthodoxy, maintains that as the twelve were a brotherhood, a college, as they were a body, an assembly of equals. So it is today with the episcopate. The bishops are the successors of the holy apostles and share their ministry in a common college, an apostolic collection or college in which they share an equal ministry to the exclusion of any claim of supremacy on the part of one bishop. Well, that I think that's a incredible introduction to this uh, the, the whole topic of succession and validity. So now we'll pinpoint even go deeper. Let's go deeper. All right. This is exciting for those of us who really love history and theology. Let's talk just a little bit now about the two principal questions that were raised by Pope Leo XIII in 1896. If you read Apostolic Cure, it says that there is an invalidity in Anglican orders because there are two defects in the Anglican ordination rite. He identifies the defect of intention and the defect of form. What does that mean? That sounds like so much curiosity and perplexity to people who are not familiar with this kind of language, but what does it really mean? He's basing all of this on St. Augustine again. So let's go back to our good friend, St. Augustine. He says that in any sacrament, there are five essential components necessary for a valid or efficacious sacrament a sacrament which instituted by Christ, covenanted by Christ, actually confers the grace promised by our Lord Jesus in the sacrament. And those five components are matter, which is the material element, the physical thing, form, the words that are used in the administration of the sacrament, subject, the person who receives the sacrament, minister, the person who administers the sacrament, and finally, intention, which is, what are you doing? What is this for? What is the purpose of it? So if we look at these five components of the sacrament of holy orders, we can review those very basically. You have matter, which is the laying on of hands, the imposition of hands. The form was not determined by Christ himself, but was given and commended to the church so that the church could develop necessary forms over time. There's no divinely revealed form for ordination, but the church in her wisdom and goodness has been led by the Holy Spirit to establish necessary forms. You have the subject. The subject of holy orders is a baptized man. Full stop. A baptized man. Confirmation is considered necessary for it to be legal or licit or canonical, But as long as the man is baptized, he may be validly ordained. The minister is a bishop in apostolic succession. And then finally, the intention is to do what the church does. Let's talk about intention. Where is Leo XIII wrong about the Anglican intention? He is wrong where we have already said in the preface to the ordinal. 
The preface to the ordinal of 1550 makes it abundantly clear that it is the intention of the Anglican rite to continue in an uninterrupted way the apostolic ministry of bishops, priests, and deacons, which have been in the church since apostolic times, since the apostolic age, and it is the intention of the Anglican Church to continue these orders exactly as they have been received. Well, that ought to settle the question, right? <laughs> that really ought to bring it to its conclusion. There we have it. There is the intention. It's on paper. It's incorporated into the ordinal. There should be no question about it. Now, interestingly, Leo XIII ignores this and never mentions the preface to the ordinal in Apostolic Cure because the minute he would, that would dissolve the argument made in the bull. And so I think it's important to say that I know some Roman Catholics raise the objection that, well, there were bishops, much more Protestant Reformed bishops in the Church of England, who did not necessarily think they were creating priests or other bishops of this Catholic order. But I think it's important to say that the, we're not Donatist. It's not the intent of the individual ordaining bishop. It is the intention of the collective body. So the intention is tied up, as you said, Bishop, in the preface to the ordinal, which was adopted by the entire church. So if there's one rogue bishop who doesn't believe it, that that's not that that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And it doesn't even affect his ability, his competence or faculty or capacity to confer valid orders. Father, you're exactly right. So let's look at this and outline it, if we may, as we have always received and understood it in the Western Church. Intention means generally to do what the Church does. It means seriously to perform the rite as understood by Christians, or to do what Christ wills, Christus volt, to do what Christ wills. It is not to intend what the Church intends, it is only to do what the church does. Mm -hmm. So what we do when we ordain is we intend to do what Christ, the apostles, and the New Testament command. That is sufficient, even if the intention is to do it in a general way. But this is what is key. It is not internal or interior or private. An individual bishop may have false ideas wrong-headed beliefs about the nature of ordination. This does not matter so long as he uses a proper liturgical rite. The intention in the sacrament of holy orders, like all the sacraments, is determined by the liturgical rite that is used. The intention of the church is manifested in the rite. If we do the rite, the intention is present. So simply to intend to ordain a man to Christ's apostolic ministry is sufficient for what is intended by the church. And we don't have to go any farther than that in terms of a true intention. As you say, intention is revealed and manifested by the liturgical rite. The church embodies her intention in the liturgical formulae. So whatever an individual person may believe in terms of orthodoxy or heterodoxy does not affect validity so long as the right is used. Here, Leo is wrong. Amen. <laughs> Can we talk a little bit about um, 
the same principle about intention, but maybe from a negative perspective. So like what would um, a defective intention look like and how would we notice it? Yes. Fantastic question. Really, the only way that one could corrupt a sacrament by excluding proper intention would be to have such a false view as to recklessly abandon what is essential to the ordination rite, or to be playing, to be jesting. It was suggested, I believe it was maybe even St. Athanasius, who once observed children playing baptism by the water, and at one point he thought that that could certainly even be valid, even though they were playing around and they were pretending to baptize each other. An intention would have to be such that you do not intend to do what Christ wishes, or you intentionally exclude the action as a Christian right. Historically, the church has said that if you are pretending or acting or playing, joshing or jesting, that that would not be a proper intention. Or if you are so heretical as to not believe in Christ or to not believe that Christ is operative in the sacraments, that kind of lack of intention would invalidate a sacrament. Invalidating a sacrament from the point of view of intention is extremely difficult to do because the intention is the easiest of all five of the components. Pope Leo's argument is that if you intended not to make a Catholic minister, if you intended something different, a Protestant, a, a radical different type of minister, no, 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 what I'm intending is, you know, 15th century Bishop of England is something that's not anything in continuity with the, with the, the Catholic Church of the Ages. He would say that constituted invalidity. And that's, yes, what he's, yes. that's what he's looking at. Now, we're, yes. obviously what you've shown from the ordinal is that's not what the Anglican bishops thought. But that would be another example of being able to invalidate the sacrament because you're not intending to do what the church has always done. Yes. And in this case, Leo is mistaken because he assigns to the intention of the Anglican church something that the Anglican church itself did not teach or believe. And we're going to de demonstrate that next when we examine the question of form. But you're right. And, of course, the men of the 16th century who did create the new liturgical rites at the time, they understood themselves to be continuing the apostolic ministry as received from Christ and the apostles and to maintain the apostolic tradition, which is evident by the preface to the ordinal. It is true that individual bishops and theologians at the time of the 16th century so reacted against abuses, for example, trafficking in holy things, the mass system with multiple masses offered for payments and for particular intentions. They were so horrified and mortified by the corrupt system that existed at that time, and it did exist. We cannot deny that it did. They were so appalled by that that their desire was to go behind the later medieval liturgical rites and to uncover what they believed was a biblical and patristic simplicity regarding how men ought to be ordained. And in so doing, they devised the 1550 ordinal. But in this process, in no way did they intend to exclude the historic ministry of the church and the threefold order of the church in the episcopate, the priesthood, and the diaconate. Yes, individually, they, in some cases, could be accused to have 
held private opinions that were at odds with the received tradition. But even that would not invalidate the use of a proper form, which leads us, of course, to the other question. I do have a bit more about intention I'd like to say, but uh, please share your thoughts on that. I think I heard a great story, uh, uh, anecdote, from Father Scott Hauser from um, uh, just south of Birmingham, Alabama. And he traveled to England, and he said it was just this wonderful testament of how the English Church at the Reformation understood ordination. You go to these country parishes, and you have they have a list on the wall, or at least this one parish he was at, of all the priests who've served the parish ever. And it goes through the 1300s, the 1400s, and you hit the Reformation, and you know what happens? Nothing. It just keeps going with priests, because in their mind, those there's not a distinction. There's not a line drawn across that says post-Reformation, pre-Reformation. It's just another priest in the same succession. Yes, precisely. This is why the Anglican Church intentionally kept the word priest in the 1550 ordinal. That is profoundly significant. And when we examine that in the light of later developments— in ecclesiastical history in the 16th and 17th centuries, one of the great oppositions, one of the great sources of consternation and irritation to the Puritans was the preservation of the word priest in the Anglican ordination rite. We did not call priests presbyters. And in fact, in the old Latin rite of ordination, they are called presbyters, presbyterii and the like, presbyterii, uh, that was used, and presbyter used in the old Latin ordination rite, we use the word priest to preserve its sacerdotal connotations, its sacerdotal meaning, and the purpose of the word priest as an offerer of sacrifice. So yes, there's this absolutely brilliant and, and marvelous continuity on the parochial level in the Church of England. The priest who was ordained before the Reformation remained the rector, after the Reformation began, and his successor continued in office as a priest with no interruption, no rupture in the succession of the parochial ministry, because it was fully understood that the priesthood had been preserved. Mm -hmm. And we kept the word priest intentionally for this reason in our ordination rite. And it's almost sort of, I mean, I know this is an earlier part of the Reformation, but uh, when Henry and Edward died and Reginald Pole came into England, he wasn't mass reordaining priests. It was like they kind of understood that things were still, you know, valid uh, on that level, um, which I think is always interesting. I mean, he maybe did a few reordinations, I think, um, but not not in mass. There were people who hadn't been reordained under the, you know, under the new regime. Um, so I think that's interesting. Oh, it's fascinating. When you look at that particular event in time, the Pope instructed that the cardinal bishop should only ordain men who had not received the right of the church, as it was called, not the Latin right, but an understood received right of ordination. He was speaking about Protestant ministers who had received some form of ordination without bishops and without the traditional laying on of hands and prayer for priestly ordination. He was not referring to the Anglican rite because he would have done so. <laughs> he did not. He did not refer to the Anglican rite. Rather, he referred to the rite of the church as being necessary 
which presumably included both, both the old pontifical, the old Latin rite of ordination, as well as the 1550 Anglican ordinal. But at that time, when we look at the, the Marian period, and when Queen Mary Tudor comes to the throne and there's the restoration of the papal church, those men are reordained only who had actually been Protestant ministers. And that is clear from the context of the papal instructions. The Anglican clergy were admitted to their benefices as having received holy orders. So that really contradicts Leo XIII as well. And it's interesting that that's not mentioned in Apostolic Curia either, is it? <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> it's, it, it is fascinating. I have just a couple more things I'd like to mention about intention, and then we'll go to the question of form. The Roman Catholic Church contradicted itself in 1896 because in 1872, the Holy Office received a question about baptisms administered by Methodists in Oceania in the region of Australia and New Zealand. And the question was, are these baptisms valid because the ministers giving them have preached sermons saying they don't believe in baptismal regeneration? So these ministers were saying publicly that they did not believe that baptism regenerates the soul. And yet they administered baptism with water in the name of the Blessed Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Were these baptisms valid? The Holy Office said, yes, they are valid, because the intention is manifested in the rite itself, and the use of proper matter and form provides the necessary intention. So these baptisms were recognized as being valid. Fast forward to 1896, and this is contradicted in Apostolic De Curie, where the matter and the form are used, but the intention is not presumed to be present. So this is a contradiction in terms. Don Gregory Dix, the great Anglican Benedictine writer and monk of the 20th century, said, In the ancient church, to ordain a man to the priesthood was to lay a bishop's hands upon him and to invoke the Holy Spirit to make the man a priest or a bishop. The essence of ordination was the laying on of hands and the invocation of the Holy Ghost, for the priesthood is conferred by the Spirit of God. The rite determines the intention, and therefore the laying on of hands with prayer to the Holy Spirit to make a man a priest or a bishop is what is absolutely necessary. Just as an aside, it's a fun, trivial point to point out that the Anglican ordinal refers to the priesthood 36 times and to the episcopate 100 times. So to say that we don't intend to make priests and bishops seems, well, a rather odd and curious uh, assertion or accusation. It simply isn't true. Mm -hmm. So hopefully we've addressed the question of intention and what is actually necessary. It's extremely simple. When we talk about intention, and I know we're going to talk a little bit here about um, form, and these questions I think at some point become a little bit intertwined, but obviously one of the problems that Leo has is that the um, language of uh, Eucharistic sacrifice is removed from the um, ordination rite. So could you talk a little bit um, maybe about about what about why that might be, um, considering the fact that, as you just said, we do use the word priest um, but the, it's obvious that there is a, a slight change from the Roman ordination service, or at least one of them. I, I know there were multiple ones, too, so it wasn't like there was a singular ordination service either. 
That is fantastic, Father. Thank you so much. You have anticipated one of the crucial points in Apostolic Curie, one of the strenuous points made, which to this day is used to condemn Anglican orders from the perspective of Roman Catholic writers. Although it must be said that many Roman Catholic theologians have very freely and very willingly accepted the validity of Anglican ordinations. And in the 20th century, there were probably more Roman Catholic theologians that accepted them than rejected them. This is an absolutely crucial point. I'm going to read from the Book of Common Prayer and the Ordinal. So do we exclude the offering of the holy sacrifice of the Mass, of the Eucharistic sacrifice, in the ordination of Anglican priests? Well, to answer this question, we can actually point out a couple of references in the ordinal itself. One of the questions that the bishop asks of the priest is, will you then give your faithful diligence always so to minister the doctrine and sacraments and the discipline of Christ as the Lord hath commanded and as this church hath received the same? Doctrine and sacraments. Then upon the ordination rite itself, the bishop says in the laying on of hands, and be thou a faithful dispenser of the word of God and of his holy sacraments. Then after the laying on of hands, we hear this. Take thou authority to preach the word of God and to minister the holy sacraments. In the Anglican rite, we include the offering of Eucharistic sacrifice in reference to the sacraments. Because, of course, the Eucharist is the preeminent sacrament. It is the sacrament, sacramentum sacramentorum, as St. Thomas Aquinas described it, the highest of the sacraments, because it contains our Lord Jesus Christ under the form of bread and wine, and in the consecration of the Eucharistic species, our Lord changes the bread and wine into his true body and blood, and in so doing renders himself unto the Father as our perfect and living sacrifice. The Eucharist is a sacrifice because the body and blood of Jesus Christ are always sacrificial. They were crucified on Calvary. They are risen from the dead and exalted in glory to the Father's right hand, where the Lord Jesus lives and reigns forever as our great high priest, mediator, and advocate. And the risen body of Jesus, his glorified human nature, is the sacrifice of our redemption. So in Eucharistic consecration... There is Eucharistic sacrifice and offering because Christ is always priest and victim when he is present in his glorified human nature. The Anglican rite, in a very circumspect way, includes the offering of the Eucharistic sacrifice with the authority to administer the sacraments as Christ has ordained them. The Anglican priest is ordained to be a dispenser of the sacraments and is therefore the dispenser of the Eucharistic sacrifice. I think this would suffice to answer the question that was raised by Leo XIII. We can also say that the elements which are missing from the Anglican ordination rite are the same elements missing in the Eastern Orthodox ordination rite, and in all of the ordination rites of both the Western and Eastern churches before the ninth century. And this is the point of the Archbishops of Canterbury and York in Sapius Officio, in which they say, 
to require embellishments or additions of the late medieval period in order to make an ordination rite valid would render all ordination rites invalid before the ninth century and would mean that the church has no apostolic succession. It's a very dangerous argument. So let's look at the question of matter and form in the Anglican ordinal. We may speak of Cranmer's continuity here, something he is accused of not doing, but there is a tremendous continuity here. Because the matter in Anglican orders is what we find in the New Testament and the apostolic age, which is the laying on of hands, the imposition of hands. And the continuity also is found in the phrase, Achepe Spiritum Sanctum, receive the Holy Ghost, which is given to us by our blessed Lord. This form of ordination, the words used, come directly from Christ and are used in the Anglican formula of ordination. Commonly, this form was believed to be the form during all of the later Middle Ages by all theologians. There was a Council of Mainz, which was held in Germany in the early 16th century, before the Reformation really got itself underway, and that council said that the form of ordination for bishops and priests was receive the Holy Ghost. So the meaning of the phrase, Achepe Spiritum Sanctum, receive the Holy Ghost, is determined by the context of the liturgy. There is a moral unity of the liturgical rite, what we might call a consignification, a consignificatio, and this determines the meaning of the form in any ordination rite. Any ordination rite that we may examine must be understood as a moral unity, as a moral whole. It is the whole rite that lends the significance to particular words and actions. And so when you examine the Anglican rite for ordination of priests and bishops, the phrase receive the Holy Ghost receives its meaning, certainly clarified, by the whole rite. Now, the, the Patriarch of Constantinople in 1922 said that Anglican orders were valid. And the reason why they're valid is that you have the imposition of hands and you have the epiclesis of the all-Holy Spirit upon the man to make him a, a bishop or a priest. And this epiclesis is received the Holy Ghost. So we affirm that the sacramental form certainly is not only valid, but it is, in fact, from our Lord Jesus Christ. This was considered the sacramental form by the Roman Catholic Church at the 1896 Commission because the Pope had not specifically defined in 1896 what the sacramental form of ordination was. Pope Pius XII in 1947 would finally declare for the Latin Rite what the forms of ordination actually are. So at this point, in 1896, you have Roman Catholic theologians saying that receive the Holy Ghost was, in fact, the sacramental form. So what is necessary for matter and form? You have to have the laying on of hands, and you have to have a prayer, or you have to have an invocation of the Holy Spirit, which indicates grace and the office being confirmed. Okay, so what do we have in the form of the Anglican Church? What is the form? You have to have a form that indicates grace and the order being given. This is found in both Anglican forms. The grace, of course, is the Holy Spirit. 
receive the Holy Ghost. That is the gift of the Holy Spirit for ordination. And we find a prayer for grace in both the collect and in the litany of the ordination rite. Both the collect and the litany directly ask for the grace of holy orders. And asking the Holy Spirit is certainly asking for grace, isn't it? When we when we think so, it's okay. really asking for grace. Now, the order is identified by the biblical forms. We use forms directly taken from the New Testament. St. John 20, verses 21 to 23, for the ordination rite of priests. And 2 Timothy 1, verses 6 and 7, for the ordination of bishops. Our forms are invested with both grace and power for the priesthood and for the episcopate. How could one deny that the biblical forms would be adequate for ordaining a man, a priest, or a bishop? And in fact, the Council of Trent refers to both of these scriptural passages as Christ's institution of the priesthood and the episcopate. What's really shocking about Apostolic Cure is that it condemns as formulas for ordination scriptural phrases that are used at the Council of Trent to define the meaning of the priesthood and the episcopate. So it's completely inconsistent. Wow. Completely. I didn't know that. So the purpose of the Anglican Rite is to simplify the rite based on the New Testament and the earliest ordination rites. And the terms priest and bishop are found throughout each of these all the way up until 1662. Now, in 1662, the words priest and bishop were added to the phrase, receive the Holy Ghost. Why? Was it to realize that the Roman Catholics were wanting us to do this, and so we changed our form to please the Bishop of Rome? No. The reason that the words priest or bishop were added to the sacramental forms in 1662 was to correct the error of the Puritans, of the, of the Protestants, who were saying that bishop and priest were equal offices. And so the Anglican Rite intensified the meaning of these forms to confound the errors of the Puritans, who wanted to say that bishop and priest were the same office and not distinct. So this is where we come down on the question of form. I hope that that helps explain why we use the forms that we do. They are actually from the Exeter and the Serum Pontificals of the 13th century, and they were recognized by all Latin theologians of the late Middle Ages as being perfectly valid. Well, I think one thing, which you just said there at the end, is an important point to comment on, and that is there— there's no such thing as liturgical uniformity in the quote-unquote Roman Catholic Church until Trent. There, there were multiple uh, forms used for, very, for, for all the sacraments. And so to come down hard on Anglicanism, as Pope Leo does, for having different form is um, it's just absurd. It's certainly anti-historical, isn't it? It's certainly contrary to what we have received in the church's life and tradition, and this can be so very easily and plainly demonstrated. So this would lead us to the understanding that Leo XIII's motivation in Apostolic Curie is more political than theological. 
Now, we've talked about the Sacrament of Holy Orders and what it is. We've talked about where this controversy arises. We have spoken about the necessity of intention and how that comes about and what the Church actually means by intention and how the Anglican Church has maintained that intention. We've now talked about the form and the continuity of the form and the clear and explicit theology of a sacerdotal priesthood in the form, noting that in St. John chapter 20, our Lord breathes the Holy Ghost upon the apostles after his resurrection and gives them the power of absolution to forgive sins in Christ's name. The Anglican ordinal is very explicit in saying that the principal power of priests is the forgiveness of sins. With the celebration of the Eucharistic sacrifice, the priesthood is given the power of the keys. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Receive the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. This is at the essence of the Catholic priesthood. The risen Jesus imparts the Holy Ghost upon the apostles so that he may take to the world his Easter peace and offer forgiveness of sins to the nations by the power of Christ's death and resurrection. Now, if that isn't priesthood, I don't know what is. That's at the very heart. That is at the core of what it means to be a Catholic priest, to possess the power of the keys, to have the sacramental authority and power to exercise absolution. And with that, of course, to celebrate the Eucharistic sacrifice, because Christ gave the power to the Twelve to celebrate this mystery at the Last Supper, when our Lord gave to the Twelve the authority to do this, do this in anamnesis of me, do this to make me present again. And so we find that also deeply bound up in the scriptural narrative and in the command of Christ as he constitutes the Twelve, the priests of the new and everlasting covenant. And we have spoken, therefore, about form and why the Anglican Church elected to use biblical forms for the episcopate. It is, stir up the grace of God which is in thee by the imposition of, your, of these hands, uh, of hands, and of course when the bishop does that, of your hands, when you lay hands on others. Stir up the grace of God which is in thee by the imposition of our hands, for God has not given us the spirit of fear, but has given us the spirit of love and soberness of a sound mind. This is St. Paul's commission to Timothy, making him a bishop. And this is why Anglicans have retained that as the sacramental form. I have just a few more brief notes about this, but I think we've covered it quite well. Fathers, what would you like to say in reference to these earlier points, if you have things you'd like to say? Amen. I think it's good. I think I think everything you've said, Bishop, is it it's cut to the heart of the discussion. It's cut to the heart of the debate back and forth. And it really shows that what Leo brings up is is unfortunately uninformed and politically driven. It also shows that it is a modern question. This, this, you know, could Anglicans be valid or invalid? That's, that's such a modern question that was not even being asked in, in 
Reformational times, as you said, even the Roman Catholics during the Reformation were not looking at Anglican priests and saying, you're invalid. So, so yeah. it's a modern question because of modern issues, modern situations. And as you said, I, I, I have heard also as well, Ang, Ang, uh, Roman Catholics who say, yeah, Anglican orders are valid. It's good to hear the Patriarch of Constantinople in, would you say, 1922 said, yeah. admitted this as well, that these other communions are recognizing that for whatever else we disagree on, there can be a, a trust that grace is being conferred in the Anglican Church, which gives, pun intended, validity to what we're doing here on on Sunday mornings. Absolutely. The priesthood is all about moral certitude, and it's about the assurance of grace. The priesthood was instituted by Christ so that there might be a covenantal means of grace through which we receive the promised sacraments, the promised grace of Christ, his incarnate life applied and appropriated to us. So a valid priesthood means a valid church. A valid priesthood means we are receiving Christ at the altar. A valid priesthood means we are receiving what Jesus richly and beautifully covenants to us in the life of sacramental grace. And as Anglicans, we can be well assured that we have this apostolic gift from the hands of Jesus Christ himself. Amen. One pushback that I've gotten from Roman friends, uh, as I've had these conversations and gotten a little bit more in depth in some of the documents and primary sources, has been that um, you know when you point out the contradictory nature of some of the statements by the popes on this question. So you know if what they say in um, in the 19th century is true, then they can't have orders you know before that uh, because they undercut themselves. Uh, they often pull what I think is sort of a God of the gaps argument. Uh, that is. Uh, doctrinal development. Um, so, well, you know, it, at one time it wasn't required, but now it is because the Pope has said so. So I'm, I'm wondering, um, Bishop, how you might respond to that kind of um, re- re- rebuttal that they often provide. Yes. Well, that very much relies on Newman's essay of development of Christian doctrine, which actually teaches, unlike St. Vincent of Larens and the Commonatorium, which he wrote in the early church, it depends or sees Christian doctrine, depends on seeing Christian doctrine as evolutionary. Orthodox Catholic Christians, such as Anglo-Catholics, do not believe in development of doctrine. We do believe in development of devotion. So the liturgy may grow and develop and evolve over centuries, but what is necessary to salvation is both proven by Holy Scripture and is to be located in the consensus patricum, the consensus of the fathers, the unanimous consent of the fathers, and the universal consent of the church in the first millennium. So wherever all Christians agreed in the first millennium on matters of dogma, that is where Anglo-Catholicism stands. And therefore, we could use that principle of first millennium ecclesiology and first millennium dogmatic consensus as a way of showing that it is really not feasible to add to even liturgical texts such doctrines as are required later when they may not bear the consensus of the undivided church. Now, certainly Eucharistic sacrifice is part of the consensus of the first millennium, But it was given expression liturgically in a variety of ways, a great multiplicity of ways in the early church. And there is no one 
statement or formulation of doctrine regarding how the Eucharistic sacrifice is to be understood. Rather, the fathers have a beautiful bouquet of theological expressions and various turns of phrase and speech to describe this mystery. And it is a mystery. And this does go to this question that Leo XIII raises. All Catholic churches historically have recognized Anglican orders as sacramentally valid, except for the Roman Catholic Church. The Assyrian Church of the East recognized our orders in 1910. The Eastern Orthodox Chalcedonian churches recognized provisionally Anglican orders as the same as the Roman Church and potentially as their own, beginning in 1922 with the Patriarch of Constantinople. So the Roman Church is the only one that has ever raised any serious questions about it. The old Catholic Church of, of Utrecht recognized Anglican orders in 1925. We find before the ninth century, there was no parexio instrumentorum. There was no tradition or handing on of the patent and the chalice, the cup and the plate in the ordination rite. So there was no tradition of the instruments in the early ordination rite of all Christians. There was no unction, anointing of the priest, symbolizing the gift of the Holy Spirit. And there were no explicit references to the sacrifice in the Mass in the later language of scholasticism, or the later Latin fathers in the late Middle Ages. All of that was absent from ordination rites in all Christian churches before certainly the ninth century, and... Leo XIII says something very interesting. He says that an ordination rite has to say that there must be the offering and consecration of the body and blood of Christ in the sacrifice of the Mass, and that this has to be found or signified in an ordination rite. Well, if we take a specific scholastic definition of that kind, we will find there are no ordination rites before the ninth century that use exactly that language. For example, a bishop does not say in the ninth century, I am ordaining you to offer and consecrate the body and blood of Christ. Bishops don't say that mm. in ordination rites before the ninth century. So that's quite a pickle. And so I think we, we can use that to demonstrate that Anglican ordinations are on par with all ordinations in the early church, because the ordinal is very much like primitive ordination rites and has all that is essential, all that is necessary for ordination. And I think that is a wonderful spot for us to conclude. This has been an amazing episode. I know it's been a deep episode. This has been drinking from a fountain, but it's, but it's important. There's a lot of information here because as you said, Bishop, a lot of ink's been spilled and it's, and it's an all important question. Is the man standing at the altar a priest or not? That's what it comes down to. And as you restricted at the beginning, Orthodox, Anglicans in the world, we can be sure that the man up there is is conferring the grace of God through apostolic succession. Yeah. And so that that what a comfort, what a joy to know that when I go to church on Sundays or an Anglican goes to church on Sundays or any other day of obligation, that there is a tactile connection to the apostles there up front. So if this episode for our listeners has been a bit heavy, a bit over your head, take comfort, dear Anglicans, that the Lord is with you 
incarnationally through his priests and bishops, and that this is a good and meet thing. Well, how about to wind down the episode in a way to bring us back to normal kind of conversations at a coffee shop? Let's talk about what we're into. Uh, Father Wes, are you into anything these days? I have been. Uh, last weekend was week one of the NFL, and so I have been watching football uh, after I get home on Sundays. Uh, I We have three services, so I'm usually pretty tired by the time we get home, so it's nice to just sit on the couch and watch football all day. The Dallas Cowboys won last week, and I anticipate that that's going to be a trend moving forward. So, yeah, I've been pretty excited to do that. I've got my fantasy football league set up and uh, seem competitive in that, so... I just I love football. I've been teaching our son how to do um, how to do say down set hike and uh, throw the ball a little bit and stuff. So um, yeah, it's been great. That's a lot of fun. Well, for me, I've um, I've recently re- been reminded. I've seen this movie uh, multiple times. It's actually the only DVD I own. But I've been Tree reminded. No, not Tree of Life. Heck no. Calvary. And I've just been reminded recently how great this movie is. Calvary is a movie produced by the Irish Film Guild. It's got Brendan Gleeson. He acts as a Roman Catholic priest in this kind of country Irish parish, which might be redundant because all of Ireland's country, except for the only two cities. Anyway, we won't go there. And the parish hates him, but it is the epitome of what it means to be a priest in Christ one church. And there's this one scene that always gets me, and I would say it has shaped my pastoral ministry more than, maybe more than any book I've even read. And it's a moment where Brennan Gleeson, this priest, he's he's speaking to this guy that is a homosexual prostitute. And this prostitute is talking to the priest and is just jeering at him, telling him, you know, how much it would cost for the priest to pay to sleep with him and just all of these vile things. And immediately Brennan Gleason just, he just looks at this man and says, are you okay? Are, are you okay? He cuts all of the, all of the, the fluff and he sees this man as a person made in the image of God and wants to help him with the grace of Christ. And it is a powerful scene because the the male prostitute just kind of you can see him kind of jump, and he says, I, I, "I'm fine, Father. Don't. I'm done." And he kind of walks away. What a powerful, powerful picture of what it means to be a priest to just jump into the souls of people, because you have but one job, to lead them to Christ. So that's what I've been into. Have Have either of you seen that movie? Yes, it's magnificent. It is. So I, I, I recommend it to all of our listeners. Please know it is a it is a heavy film and it is not one that you would want to invite your children to uh, watch with you. But it is powerful. It is powerful. As one of my friends who's a priest, Father Stephen Longclo, after he watched the film, he admitted that he pretty much stared at the wall and cried for 20 minutes. It was so powerful of what it means to be a priest. Well, Bishop Chad, Bishop Jones, what what are you into these days? Well, thank you. And again, I want to thank you so much for having me on this. And I know this was very technical, and we went through a lot of things today that may require numerous episodes of listening over and over again to this one episode. And I want to uh, express my gratitude for your patience in trying to 
uh, unpack and undergird this very intense theological and historical question. Well, like Father West, we, I, I at least am a huge football fan. Now, the rest of my family is very chagrined by this. But on Saturdays when I get the time, I love college football. So recently I took my oldest son, Aiden, and we went to the Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta and watched Duke destroyed by Alabama in the Triple-A <laughs> kickoff game, the first game of the season. It was 40, let's see, 42 to 3 was the score at the end of the day. But what a fantastic experience to be there and see my Duke Blue Devils play the Alabama Tide. It was wild. What a great game. I do love college football. I'm traveling a lot this fall, and I'm, I'm sort of grieving that I'm not going to be able to watch a lot of college football. Mm-hmm. But I do record it on the DVR, and I watch it when I get a chance. A true now, fan. When I'm, when I'm not doing that, right now I'm tackling a 600-page book, The New History of the Society of St. John the Evangelist, The mm-hmm. Cowley Fathers. It's a huge and very small print text. It's going to take a long time to wade through that. The Cowley Fathers were one of the original Anglican religious orders for men in the Anglican Communion. They were at the forefront of the Catholic revival in the Anglican tradition. They no longer exist in England. They died out because of the problems that have existed within the Anglican Church tradition in the last century. There are very few Cowley Fathers left. But our people in the continuing church would recognize the Cali Fathers because they gave us the American Missile. Mm. So we still use their Missile, and that's a marvelous thing. So it's worth taking the time to read that history to know where we come from and part of the, the tradition that has been so important to us in terms of monasticism, the religious life, liturgy. Really, the story of the Cali Fathers is the story of Anglo-Catholicism in the 20th century. So it's going to be a fun book but a very long read. <laughs> well, very great. Well, you'll have to uh, give us an update in a few years about how it went. Absolutely. I'll let you yeah. know then. <laughs> well, Bishop, we, are, we express our gratitude to you to taking, for taking your time, as you mentioned at the beginning of the episode, of your, out of your busy schedule, to be here with us, the Sacramentalist, and to share on a very important topic, a very needed conversation, albeit as technical as it is, I hope our listeners wade through it. I hope they they understand the seriousness because so much hinges upon this conversation. So thank you for your diligence. Thank you for your service to Christ Church. And to our listeners, if you like what we're doing, uh, make sure to follow us on Twitter and on Facebook and rate, review, subscribe, and share us um, with, with your friends. And if you have any feedback, especially about this episode or, or any others, Father Wes and I are planning a uh, question and answer episode to answer your questions coming up soon. Please email us at thesacramentalist at gmail.com. And Father Wes, will you give just a very quick explanation about the Facebook group? Yeah, if you are interested in discussing the ideas uh, that we talk about on episodes or interacting with people who have uh, walked on the Canterbury Trail and who are reading about Anglo-Catholicism, then join our Facebook group on our Facebook page. You can find it um, and just request to join and we'll approve you. And um, it's become a really interesting place to have conversations about what goes on in the show. And I think uh, hopefully it'll continue to be so moving forward. Well, great. Well, Bishop, can I ask you to bless us? I would be honored. Let us pray. And thank you again for having me on this wonderful, wonderful podcast. 
The peace of God which passeth all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost be amongst you and remain with you always. Amen. Amen. Amen.